Welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing organized labor. What? <laughs> what? From the what? 1940s through the 1960s, as the music industry was fracturing and reforming around selling record recordings of jazz, classical country, and this new thing called rock and roll. What? A group Sorry. of valiant musicians attempted to create an organization to represent their interests, a musician's union. And today we'll be learning all about organized labor in the music industry, the origins of modern commercial music, and the foundation of rock and roll through Michael James Roberts' book, Tell Tchaikovsky the News. Wow. Roll over, Beethoven. Yeah. Man. Yeah, get a a life, Mozart. Get a life. (laughs) Fuck Uh, off, Tchaikovsky. uh, But first, let's introduce to our guest. He's a Brooklyn-based music writer who has contributed to Spin, Rolling Stone, and The New Yorker. Heard of him? It's David Turner. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here. Yay. Yes. Now, you recommended this book to us, uh, which is great because, you know, usually we cover, you know, individual musicians experience. But today we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about collective collectivizations, collect collectives, collectives. Collective, yeah. Collect- collectives, big groups. Yeah. And, uh, you know, their their necessity for representing any kind of power against a uh, mass industrial force, which is something that we often talk, uh, you know, kind of bump into on this yeah. show, but have never really uh, addressed head on. So I'm excited to talk about this today. Yeah. Yes. That's sort of why I wanted to recommend the book, because it seems like it's always under the surface and sometimes yeah. rises above. But this book makes it explicitly clear. Right. Yeah. And as well, we've, um, you know, we, we've done Louis Armstrong is as far back as we went. And that's like earlier in this century. But we yes. really haven't covered much this like formative period of the, the recording 40s. music industry as we know it today. 50s. And I think it's really fascinating. It is fascinating. I, I, this is so far, it's completely out of my depth in terms of musical knowledge, like period. So yeah. I was listening to a lot of, a lot of weird stuff earlier today <laughs> uh, that I really enjoyed. Yes. Molly was playing me some very goofy, very ribald uh, yeah. uh, musics from, from the 1940s, which I hope we will get a, a chance to touch later today. How did you get, how did you find this book? Like, how did you get into, into it? I honestly cannot remember. I was trying to remember this er- like earlier this week. So I think honestly, just sort of came from a very basic place of I was formerly in, in, in like the union rep for my, the side I worked at. I'm still mm-hmm. part of the WJE, mm-hmm. Riders of America East. Hell yeah. And, yeah. Shout, Shout out to the WJE East. The and coolest. so I was like, oh, I wonder about music. They must have union. <laughs> and I, I could probably find the email where I started emailing a few people being like, so like, what are the big music unions? And it was like, oh yeah, the American Federation of Musicians. And I was like, oh, okay, let me look them up. And then I looked at their Wikipedia page and the Wikipedia page is like, very terse and I was like hmm there's gotta be more here so I just went to the bad place amazon.com <laughs> and started searching and then just saw this book and I was like this sounds interesting so I just like ordered it because sometimes I'll just order a book just because I want to mm-hmm. and then I started reading and I was like holy fucking shit yeah I've read a lot of music history books I've just been in like I feel like I just know the narrative of music and rock and roll especially yeah and I had never learned any of this shit yeah, yeah. And, I, and I was like oh wait this also explains Sort of why the music industry is one of the worst places ever. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I, I actually read the the American Federation of Music's Wikipedia page today, too. And like, it's a mess. It's like not it's very sparse. It's very weird. Like, I don't know who wrote it, um, <laughs> but it's not. It doesn't explain anything about anything. And just what we're talking, touching on Wikipedia pages, uh, Molly pointed out earlier today, uh, entertainingly that the concept of the, the music, music industry, industry. Has its own <laughs> Wikipedia page. and it's not honestly that long either <laughs> it's the music industry is an industry dedicated to making 
music. I was going to say, I actually brought another book, which I maybe I'll, I'll mention it later. It's called Playing to the Crowd. And that book actually makes a very good point where it says to like not refer to the, re- to make it seem between the music industry and the record industry. Right, right, right. Ah, yes. So, because I think for this book, we were talking more about the actual record, record. industry right, right, right. versus yeah. what is music, be it live music, yes. be it good instruments or all the other things that take the account for that. Yeah. And I think that's something that we'll get into as we talk, talk about this book, the, the distinction between those things, because there are, there are concepts that kind of continuously since the advent of recorded music weave in and out of each other. And at different times they're closer and at different times they're further away. And I think, you know, a lot for a large part of the latter half of the 20th century, like recordings and live performance of music were like basically synonymous. You were a band, you existed to, to sell records, doing live performances was a mechanism to sell records. And now we're kind of in a time when we're separating those things again, because there's like what's going on in like the selling and distributing of music is crazy right now, which I hope to talk to a little bit about at the end of this. Yeah. Um, And performing music is, has now ballooned again to be its like own industrial process, all its own that musicians need to rely on to, be musicians absolutely absolutely which is why like chance the rapper still doesn't have a record deal and seems he makes like all of his money touring i feel like he's figured out and selling hats and then he just gives it all all back to chicago also his manager was also already sort of privately wealthy oh really that's not that's not not useful to have in your life i'm uh i'm glad that in this uh amazing stage of capitalism that we're in we've d- devised a system in which public education is funded by uh, musicians selling hats <laughs> <laughs> we've created a wonderful system of hats to education yes i mean that's still better than the lottery system which is the regressive tax right for exactly. education yeah. yes true 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 anyway right. molly we should we get into, dive into this yes okay so this book opens usually uh these books they love to open in, in media res but this is sort of like at the in in end res in finish, finishing res mm-hmm. uh, where it's 1969 nice. Uh, nice the AFM published an article about Credence Clearwater revival in Great. their paper the international musician it's 1969 it's the first time they have ever covered a rock and roll artist <laughs> in their paper and it's only the second time that the words rock and roll had ever been printed in the union's paper All right. so this is where we are at this point they yeah. are just barely scratching the surface of this this Fogarty fellow is doing something interesting (laughs) with a guitar that maybe is worth mentioning (laughs) um so basically the the writer of this book is just like the AFM shunned rock music uh they were virtual rock musicians were virtual pariahs Mm -hmm. um for 20 plus years um which basically ended up weakening the role of unions in music uh once rock became the dominant genre um and then this the way this happens is basically there's a couple layers to this problem, which we can kind of talk yeah. about. One is that um, the, I mean, the point, do you want to talk about what the point of, of the music union is supposed to be? Yeah. So, I mean, the, they, he doesn't really talk about this in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, the AFM, so the American Federation of Musicians started, I think, in the late 1800s. And it started yeah. just sort of as a sort of a guild of musicians, like many sort of like many guilds in the late 1800s started, where it essentially was like, you have a particular skill. And in this case, it's being a musician. And it's like, okay, we have these skilled people. And this is what we're going to sort of sort of start coming collectively together. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty exclusive, which is not too surprising. Yeah. I don't think this book actually goes into like a lot of the fact that there are different like, 
black unions and mm-hmm. sort of like more right. subset union of music unions that yeah. basically were excluded from the AFM. And so that sort of starts in the 1800s and sort of goes into the 1920s. And then once sort of happens in the 1920s is that it's sort of like, oh, there are these things called recordings. <laughs> and recordings are kind of this weird sort of thing where it's like, oh, on one end, recordings end up be- like recordings and like like film, like film end up being a great thing because theaters start showing projections and they need orchestras and musicians. Yeah. Yeah. And so once they got that, it's like, oh, awesome. We now have all these thousands of musicians that now have jobs, jobs. that are very consistent and, pr- and pretty good. <laughs> and nothing <laughs> will ever change about this. Yep, no, we're done, we're solid, we're good. And then this bad thing happened, notice, the talkie. Right. The talkie just ruined everything from yes. there. So all of a sudden, musicians were just like dropping like flies. Well, they weren't dropping like flies, but their actual jobs were dropping like flies. Right. Yeah. And they were like, uh, oops, uh, we're now kind of like a little bit fucked right now. I can curse, correct? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, hell okay, yeah. Okay, sorry. I, I don't know why. I, that was just like a weird thing to say. Yeah. Um, so... They were simply fucked at that point. And they essentially spent the 1920s and the 1930s sort of like, uh, we got to try to like deal with this thing because recordings are here. And so the thing that the union did is they sort of like were able to create industry standards. Mm-hmm. So they were like, okay, you're paid this hourly wage. If you are at a radio stage, you're going to be paid this much because also radio was great because that meant you had a steady union job at, at the radio, like yeah. performing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this essentially was going. Let's give it up for the RCA orchestra. <laughs> and so as that was happening, that was pretty good. Then what sort of what sort of eventually became sort of the eventual concern was the recording recording in albums and the idea that it was like, okay, well, if you're recording an album, that means you are not going to be performing that at a radio station. That means people can just buy it and then never have to actually like go potentially see you, which is always the concern. That's been a concern for a hundred plus years. It's this weird idea that if the recording is at home, they'll just never leave the home, which is like the strange I don't understand why this is a thought that like almost every entertainment yeah. industry has had. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it is a very like, at least like 20th century and beyond thing that each new uh, industrial design has yeah. like an apocalyptic thought. Yeah. Exa- Which is like VR headsets it. right now. I feel like yeah. everyone being like, oh my God, people are just going to wear their VR headsets all the time and no one's going to interact in real life as yeah. if that isn't like a sustaining portion of being a human who's <laughs> right, right, alive right. is like <laughs> maybe like, talking to people or touching yeah, them or now something. Now that the gramophone exists, people are just going to <laughs> listen to recorded music until they wither away and die. But <laughs> that mean, is like, that's what people, that's that's what what people, people freak out. Yeah. yeah. And they and they keep assuming that every, every, every couple decades. So what <laughs> ended up happening is that the American Federation of Musicians ended up getting a new union leader, um, this man named James Petrillo, who essentially was like the fucking boss. Yeah, like, he's a badass. Awesome. Yeah. Like he has sent. Okay, so I, I, the last five months as I started reading about him, whenever I see people, I'm just like, so I got to tell you about my man, James. <laughs> James essentially did was one of the was a great labor leader. So one of the I don't this book sort of touches on this, but sort of like skirts on by it. Mm-hmm. Like he fought children playing music on the radio uh-huh. like mm-hmm. he literally was like children would like perform music because children performing music is cute and fun and yeah. cool yeah, yeah even though technically it's also bad because like the only reason children perform music was because the was because the actual in like the music industry of, of instruments just started pumping that into school <laughs> so they convinced schools to be like actually music is good and you should have instruments and record players in the early t- in the early 20th century which uh-huh. is why every third grader still today learns to play recorder yeah to <laughs> an awful caterwauling uh soundtrack to, uh, of elementary schools all across the nation yeah and that's sort of like that's a thing i was writing a book earlier this year where i was just like 
Oh, yes. The, <laughs> even the capitalism of this just started so long ago yeah. that I just even forgot about it. So Petrillo was like, wait a minute. These children are taking away union labor. We've got to like stop that. Yeah. And eventually, like essentially, like was able to strong arm them and be like, okay, only some children's music will be allowed to be played. <laughs> and then even during World War II, he was like, oh, these Navy, like these Navy musicians. How many of those are happening <laughs> on the radio during World War II? And was just like, mm, we got to like, 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 it would like rein that back in. And they were able to fight the fucking Navy and the U.S. Army. And they eventually curtailed how much like actual Army music was That's played on the wild. radio. That's crazy. That's insane. And the reason is, as, as the book sort of starts off in 1942, they were willing to go on strike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They striked for over a, year, over a year over recordings, essentially being like, wait a minute, this is fucking us over. This technology is going to destroy our jobs. We yeah. have to stop this. And they ended up striking and they ended up getting a pretty decent solution where it was like, well, if we make this music, some of the profits of the industry just go right back to us. Yeah. Right. And it was like, oh, that sounds like <laughs> such a simple solution. Why is that so elusive and not a thing that happens more? I, as I read this book, I kept like in the back of my head as I like read tech sites that are like automation is destroying everything. Jobs are gone. <laughs> like the Midwest yeah. will just be a fucking will just be like, a crater. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just be gone. It's like there's no way we can stop. It. There's no way. And I'm like, but these people yeah. 70 years ago figured out a really easy solution. You just make it so the capital, if it is increasing, it comes, yeah. Reinvest. Comes Reinvest. Yeah. And actually, the the other thing that Petrillo did where when, after that strike, when he basically was like, we're going to create a fund with royalties from the sale of recordings to create, what is it called? Uh, what is eventually called the Music Performance Trust Fund. So that's money from record sales to fund free public concerts, aka the things that right. people leave their house to, to go, go see. see. For over four million dollars, over nineteen thousand public concerts during the the contract between um, record companies and the union. So that, that's a job creator. They created jobs. It wasn't just the the stopping of loss of jobs from automation. And that's, they created jobs that fucking rules. And that's real. That's a, a union, baby. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean that is great. That's so exciting. That's uh, and that's a really interesting way to think of recorded music as the automation of. Mm-hmm. musician yes. jobs mm-hmm. um and that's i mean I, I obviously i've thought a little bit about music as labor but i i've never you know really had that formulation of of what a record mm-hmm. is in my head especially and again a lot of i think thinking about this stuff is just a, a good like mental reframing of how we think about and consume music because you know music is very much a commodity now and yeah. you and you, even by the musicians themselves like pushed as like product that is selling a portion of themselves. Um, so I don't know. That's that's interesting to think of that as like an uh, just an automation. automated. Yeah. I mean, that's why I thought this the opening of this book was just so fascinating because I had never thought of that in that context before. Yeah. And it was and it's very true. And also just sort of like re to me, like the idea of recorded music being this thing that like is sort of the thing that we are ultimately always sort of fighting against. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was like, ah, uh, yes, this sort of makes sense. So like. Last year, I was at a friend's birthday, and a writer who I really respect just made this off-cuff remark where he was like, the music industry has just been selling air vibrations for, like, over a century. (laughs) And I just, like, that just stuck in my head, like, half-drunken thought, because I was like, but, like, that's true. It's so arbitrary that we, like, record a thing, and we just, like, figured out a price for it, and that's, like, how we're going to do it. There's no, like, real other, like, the good doesn't really exist in any other form but that, and it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, that, like, makes a lot of sense, and also is, like, Sort of why you could sort of start seeing down the line why 
the actual strength of the union starts slowly being undermined as sort of time starts going on further. Yeah. So we get to the late forties and we have this a federation of musicians that, uh, yeah. that has a, a certain amount of power within the, the world, enough power to fight the fucking troops, which uh, go for them. Yeah. Uh, the so <laughs> what happens as styles and genres change? Yeah. So all of this is tied together in the sense that the very kind of sentiment that makes the union so strong and so willing to do things like strike, like they literally, there were no instrumental recordings were made in the United States between 1942 and early 1943. Really? Um, yes. Just straight they up. did not record for they like did. a year? No, they straight up did not record. Oh, yes. Because yes. also, I just want to say, that's because the fucking record labels were like, we have a stockpile of this shit. We yeah. can just wait this out as long as possible. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, that's why they, that's why Petrillo was like, oh no, if we're striking, we are striking. striking. Even if like, even like, like FDR was like, yo guys, like, <laughs> We need the music for like the war. And, and <laughs> we need we need the jazz to fight the Nazis. He literally was trying to pull that, and Matrillo was just like, nah. nah. Our, our strategic bebop supply is running dangerously low. The soldiers are complaining that the the bebop from you know 1940 is just washed right now. Yes. They need that new. They need the fresh tunes. Uh, Hitler Hitler's uh, supply of oompa is overwhelming our forces out on the fronts. it's crazy so yeah that they obviously like the entire mood of of labor especially after world war ii is like there's pressure on you know uh there's pressure from workers to give them a larger slice of the pie right so like strikes in general i think they said that in 1941 almost Eight, or over eight percent of workers had been on strike at some point that year, which is kind of Hell, wild. Yes, a lot of these yeah. were wildcat strikes, Let's which are make not America organized. Forty four again. Yeah. Yes. Oh, hell yeah. Um, a lot of these were wildcat strikes, which are like just not necessarily organized by the unions. It's just people no. being like, fucking like shit. fucking Google, like Google. Hell yeah. Solidarity with our, our tech tech bros. Our tech. <laughs> the only good tech tech bros, the brothers and sisters on the wildcat picket line. Hell yeah. <laughs> Um, so the, this mood filtered into music, which became, you know, like sort of the working class sentiments of like blues, which became jump blues, which became R&B, which became rock and roll. The union here's, so there's three reasons why the union didn't feel compatible with rock and roll and basically ignored it. One is that they were a craft union and that meant that they had to have certain skills in order to be in the union. Yeah. Yeah. Namely reading music. Overrated. Rock music, (laughs) rock musicians didn't necessarily know how to read music because they were listening to recordings and learning from recordings. Yes. So they were kind of taking, taking that power in their own hands, but that did not qualify them for a craft union like the AFM. Here's a joke my old guitar teacher used to tell me. What's the difference between a guitarist and a guitarist that can read music what about a hundred thousand a year ah. so and that you know that was in like 2003 or something so that 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 sentiment lives on yeah yeah um also another uh another aspect of rock and roll that was not compatible with unions is that there were um they had non-musical aspects of their performance, <laughs> such as unconventional dancing, which too many hips, too, too many, many hips. hips, too many, many hips. hips. Look, we we can't write what you're doing with your hips in a trade manual, <laughs> uh, so we cannot uh, properly monetize it. <laughs> Aside, uh, union standardized values. Yeah. Um, so that that's one aspect. Another aspect is that the AFM is 
basically exist to protect and create jobs for musicians. Um, in the 40s, obviously, musicians were losing their jobs because of recorded music. Uh, and because recorded music is basically the primary format of rock music, they weren't they weren't into it. Yeah. The, the other reason is that they, there is the belief. This is kind of where like the highbrow lowbrow fits in. Is that yes. you know the highbrow union thought that uh, live music had an aura that was superior to recorded <laughs> music, which is not like a crazy thing to say because the quality of recordings at this time obviously isn't what yeah. it is today. Right. So I feel like they that in some in some ways kind of makes sense that they would think that, but. Um, uh, you know, versus rock music, its records provide a cheap and immediate entry into the realm of musical performance. Records open the doors for droves of working class kids who yearn to play music. So the recorded aspect of rock and roll while basically creating generations and generations of new musicians didn't have the aura yeah. <laughs> that, the, that the union was trying to preserve. So that's why those are the basic reasons why it they weren't they weren't friends with with the rock and rollers. I want to say there. I want to like add in like a, yeah. a couple other ones. One was that the book mentions it's like the um difference between ASCAP and BMI. Yeah. Okay. So ASCAP and BMI are like the two sort of like public like the two publishing groups that essentially are like the people that essentially make it so you can actually make money off your recordings. Mm -hmm. And ASCAP was traditionally classical and sometimes jazz, sometimes jazz, <laughs> but BMI <clears throat> was essentially like country rock and like with country rock blues and essentially the working class genres. Yeah. Right, right. But like the thing is BMI was created by the record labels to essentially fight against ASCAP because ASCAP just asking for more money. And they were mm. like, mm, let's <laughs> just like go to the hill somewhere, get those recordings. Yes. And we'll just like have that be the music that we want to start promoting and pushing. Cause I mean like ASCAP was also, like, ASCAP was also bad. The thing about this book that I kind of like it, that like almost all the actors in this are more or less bad. Like yeah. ASCAP is bad. BMI is bad. The, AF, the AFM in this book is not given the best light because they <laughs> kind of fucked up a lot. Yeah. And then even musicians. I mean, the working class ones in the 40s and 50s are nice, but like the rock and roll ones, they also kind of fucking suck too. <laughs> yeah. So like no one really like, comes out looking great in this book. Yes. But like the difference between ASCAP and BMI that like a lot of the AFM artists, because they were jazz and classical, went with like went with ASCAP. And where a lot of the rock and roll ones eventually went with BMI. And then there was also a similar like race race divide where BMI yeah. actually worked with like black artists mm -hmm. and also country artists. So again, like a class divide also right. is happening here. Yeah. And like that ends up being sort of like one of the big, I mean, it's the high low, like you were saying, that ends up like stretching from like genre to like business to like mm -hmm. even just like as it gets into later, like counterculture, or, like just right. sort of, like cultural issues. It's like, yeah. there's just a giant split that just happened at this point where like, there were just a lot of different factors that were sort of like unresolved in, in this matter. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's what, one of the most fascinating things about the origin of rock music as a musical genre is that it really is this, in, in my understanding of it, this like very class based coming together of a lot of disparate yeah. uh, genres of music that are all mostly their one <laughs> linker is that they're like poor people's music, yeah. whether yeah. it's like jump blues and then also like hillbilly, hillbilly. music yeah. and like, different kinds of, of, of more like up-tempo urban uh, jazz yeah. genres, mm -hmm. like all get mixed together in what is basically like a mass popular movement yes. of music yeah. that then these like set forms are trying to resist in an industrial capacity. But I think as we'll see as this goes on, that uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult to resist a mass movement. Yes, yes yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. 
that that is what we learn. Um, also, I do want to point out that at this time, um, kind of in the transition, so uh, Petrillo, the the head, the president of the AFM before him was Joseph Weber. Weber, Weber. Um, never know how to pronounce that one. He. <laughs> He was seeing obviously the the job losses happening um, with the advent of recorded music too, and his response, rather than do a strike, was to do like a print ad campaign and spent like millions of dollars of the union's money on just trying to encourage people that like live music is just a better cultural experience, <laughs> and like that that was his solution was just like, yeah. come on guys, don't you like going to the the gazebo and hearing the band play? Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna say again, the class divide. I mean, this is happens even today the class yeah. divide between the rank and file musician and the leadership up top is just always so glaring in these kinds of moments yes. right, right, right. yeah uh, i i just I mean, love that he thinks that he can fix a labor problem by doing a print ad campaign <laughs> i mean it was a simpler time though it, I it, mean, that's like, true that's i mean true. like ads yeah, back then were like kind of horrifying yeah a time when you might see an ad in whatever magazine and be like you know what i really do like that gazebo <laughs> there's not that much influence coming in 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 my life yeah, yeah. like you see one ad for like oh this brand of milk you're like i think i'm ready to try a brand new milk <laughs> yeah, exactly. like that's all you need because yeah, there are only like two milks yeah you saw a new one and you're like okay i'm gonna try the new milk yeah. today and you're a new milk consumer for the next 50 years yeah, yeah. exactly sold i mean that's basically what mad men is like about <laughs> as a show it's just trying to convince people that like you know, hey, what if you smoked a different cigarette because it it, it tastes different? Yeah, and it's also it's the healthier one. Or like what, healthier nine out of ten one. doctors why recommend. Why don't you buy a beer because it's it's Dutch? <laughs> it's it's from Holland, yes. so you know it's good. Yeah. Why don't you see a lot a live music because uh, uh, this doctor here says it makes your uh, <laughs> soul healthier or yeah. something? I don't know. I yeah. do want to say the live. I actually, like, I actually do want to say, I want to stick up for the live. That kind of yeah. makes sense no, to it, me. It makes it, sense. It makes a lot of sense, especially if you like, I galaxy brained this like yeah. earlier this week with someone <laughs> where I was just like, but if you really think about it, recorded music is kind of really bad. And if you were to go real galaxy brain, music should only exist as a live performance that happens between a small community of people. Yeah. And everything else is a deep perversion of that. Yeah. If you get really, really esoteric about it. Yeah. I mean, well, my, my kind of feeling it's obviously easy to say this thing, this kind of thing um, with the benefit of hindsight, but it does very much feel like a why not both thing. Sure. Where, where again, this like apocalyptic feeling of like this new technology is going to come around and destroy the like 50 years. The imagination is like 50 years from now. Nobody will ever see a, a, a like violin played in person ever again, which is like now we know obviously untrue. Yeah. And you're like, well, why don't you just see these things as like mutually supportive things that can like re? But why not both? But why you not? can't. But again, once you have like this, 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 uh, uh, you know, monetary influence to pres preserve yeah. one thing at the sake of another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people's there's a little tunnel vision. Yeah. Also, can I can I make this about me for a second? Yes. <laughs> well, just just talking about this now, I'm realizing that like, as someone who is a former teenager. Um, <laughs> I was once between the ages of 13 and 19 and I didn't have any money because I didn't have a job or I had, I had a job. Thanks labor laws. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fuck that. I mean, no, yeah, that we can, we can talk <laughs> to that, but um, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had enough money to like maybe buy 
a record and like listen to it. And like that was my musical experience. I didn't really have a, a lot of money to like go to concerts or like I didn't have a car to drive to concerts. So my my personal musical experience as a teenager was essentially recorded music. Right. Now that I am older and have a job and can spend money on concerts, I appreciate live music probably in some ways more than I do recorded music, which is weird. Yeah. But I think that this whole history just kind of reminds me that like, mostly that teenagers as like a market power, uh, but also like how the youth experience and the experience of people without money or without a ton of money and Mm -hmm. how that basically influences how you consume culture. Right. Absolutely. Again, like making, bringing the, the appeal of certain genres and types of music back to class and money. Yeah. And I would also, this is just kind of an aside about the, the value of live music. I just think, I mean, I, I do get the essentialism of live music. And, and one of the ways that I feel that the most is that when I get into a band enough that they are like, I'm really, really into them and they're among my favorite bands, I basically only listen to live recordings. Yeah. Interesting. Um, like, yeah, once I, once I like. Because of the aura. Yeah, because, <laughs> because I think that they sound better and a band, a good band playing live yeah. is always better than their recorded music, mm. I think. So I, I I don't know. I want to. We can pick this up later in the conversation because when it comes to rap music, this opens a different. Yes, Ooh, that is true. Yeah, box, yeah. different Pandora. We, we, <laughs> we talked about this previously on the show that rap musicians are notoriously hit and miss on their uh, the quality of their live shows. Yeah, and so like that's something I like. Well, I'll I'll, I'll table that for the moment. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still good. we're still in the fifty. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that actually might then that difference of li- live music is like maybe one of the most genre essentialist things, Thanks. like notable things that you could say is like that the difference between like rock. And rap music is like rock is largely designed to sound good played live. live. Yes. Because yes. it is largely people playing <laughs> instruments. Yeah. I don't know. We, we can talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, we later. can definitely yeah. hop on that later. That's interesting. Um, so, yeah, we, we've kind of talked about how powerful the union was and how powerful you know, just the working class was becoming in the sense that they were like, hey, we just fought a war and we're back and, you know... Shit, like shit's still segregated. Like racism is still everywhere. Where I'm not making enough money. I just want. I want to like have a weekend. Like I want to take some time off. Like what you the know. fuck, America? <laughs> those, those those classic that's, desires. That's that's basically just like rock, like what rock music was in a nutshell. <laughs> just like why can't I just chill and like have a party and not have yeah. people be an asshole to me like societally? <laughs> yeah. Please. Why do I got all those summertime blues? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, the book references, if we want to listen to a little music, um, Louis Jordan, who is someone that I wasn't super familiar with. Nor was I. I'm sure I've heard his music like kind of anecdotally. But Louis Jordan is basically he's like technically one of the most successful black artists of all time, just based on time spent on the charts and and record sales. Yeah, I always want to make this like weird distinction where I want to be like. That was, that was kind of like numbers and markers I always think are like <laughs> highly bullshit. Yeah. Just because it's like, but like, do people know, know who, who he is? is? No. 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 Yeah. It's like, but people like know who like Scott Joplin is and like people like actually remember artists that existed before him. Yeah. So I don't want to be like, well, he's one of the most successful artists. It's not like when people are like, yeah, Hootie and the Blowfidges album is one of the biggest <laughs> albums in 1990. And I'm like, yes, this is true. But like, how many of you do, like, how many Hootie and the Blowfish songs can you name right now? Uh, I can name zero Hootie and the Blowfish that songs. That one one. 
What's that? Only oh. one of you, a few. Yeah. Oh, there yes, we go. Yeah, that one. That's the one. There's only yeah. one Hootie in the Blowfish song, but that album sold like 10 million copies. They were they sure. were probably the only uh, band to be referenced by name in f- the TV show Friends. There was an, <laughs> oh an entire Friends episode about the class divides actually between the three cast members of Friends who could afford to go to a Hootie and the Blowfish concert and the three who couldn't afford to go. What? <laughs> yeah. We used to do commentary fucking, for this episode. <laughs> fucking the the class politics of friends are just out of control Well, because on one, <laughs> they hand, all live in like gigantic apartments that they own and like swap between but then it's like Hootie and the Blowfish tickets mm, not for me I'm just a university archaeologist I can't <laughs> afford to see Hootie this weekend also the idea of seeing Hootie and the Blowfish in New York City in like the, in the mid 90s is like real real solid real cool real yeah. real square times yeah. happening um, so yeah do you, you want to pull up like um, yeah do you have any song recs or Ra- Ration Blues was referenced as like you know a song about why why can't I have more more money and more fun All right. in this, at Let's this see time if in I can, America if I can find that uh, specifically um, while you're looking, what one thing that really stood out for Louis is that at this point, you know, jazz was kind of transitioning from like big band to there's like a split between um, like R&B and blues and bebop. Um, Louis had only five members in his band instead of the usual 15 to 18 members. Radical. He really downsized. I mean, that's one of the things that makes the idea of a union far less relevant if you only have five members of the right. band. Right. Yeah. This is Louis Jordan and his <laughs> Timpani 5 off Decca Records, 1943. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tay Diggs in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> things in this right yeah i assume at some point there'll yeah, be worse I'm, I'm just enjoying those duo trumpets right now it is nice it's a little uh like the thin lizzie duo guitar trumpet. <laughs> oh my god actually these these contrasting melody lines i think are really nice Oh, this is good. This yeah. is definitely good music. Baby, Here we go. Baby, what's wrong with Uncle Sam? He's cut down on my sugar. Now he's messing with my ham. I got the ration blue. <laughs> messing with my ham. This is the most 1943 song yes. I've ever heard. Yeah, this is good. Oh, me. I've got those ration blue. Occasionally, I think like songwriting is bad in the 2010s. Yeah. But then I remember back in the day, they did what they believed. Blues was just to replace every word. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I gotta cut down on my jelly. It takes sugar to make it sweet. I'm gonna steal all your jelly, baby, and rob you of your meat. I got the ration blue. Also, wow. Also, the innuendo solid yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah, solid in your window here. Jelly, jelly and meat. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I love. I love to get a little uh, jelly on my meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's 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 a it's a grocery list. 
yeah. blues song. Yeah, I mean, you're just going out to the store. Yeah, yeah. You got you need my ham. Yeah, you need my jelly. Gotta get that bread. Gotta, gotta get, get the bread. bread. Gotta, gotta get, get that bread. bread. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty eighteen, nineteen forty three. Get that bread. Get that, get that bread. bread. But yeah, you can obviously like the class dynamic is fairly yeah. right there on the surface. And I didn't really realize this, but the in the book, it was basically saying that this was in opposition to like Tin Pan Alley songwriting, which was, you know, written in like New York and written by upper class people. And it basically portrayed America as like a great place to yeah. be like a very chill zone. Yeah. Every yeah. Every, uh, every song was about like going out on a picnic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, a night in the town. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, here's another one about I don't know horse races or something yeah it's just another it's just another song about living in Queens yeah, that's yeah. the secret thing every song is about living in Queens <laughs> it's about living in Queens or living I guess in like Midtown East yeah <laughs> even though to be fair those songwriters were also not compensated very well for their work true yeah. true 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 which is the theme of all of all of this shit Sorry, right all of this shit um, this is also, this is, I just want to do a little zoot suit interlude here. Okay. Um, cause this is something that I also knew. I'm just, you know, my mind is, is just being blown over and over again. I, I knew f- about zoot suits from the Brian Setzer orchestra song, sure. Zoot Suit Riot, <laughs> yes. which was, came out in what, 1998 during nine, the like yes. swing revival yeah. with the Gap the commercial and the people in the Poppin' Daddies. Did the Cherry Poppin', were they? Is it, isn't it insane that that it was legal to have a band name that? The Cherry Poppin' Daddies. <laughs> yes. Terrible. Wow. It's a terrible. It's so 2018 Awful. in a Cursed way. band name. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh my God. man. Maybe yeah. they'll come back in 2019. <laughs> yeah, more. We're due for a second swing revival. Actually, I'm really looking forward to when Scott comes back in a big way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when, when do you think that will be? Uh, 2023. 2023. We'll yeah. get some Scott. Scott I mean, we're in, the, we're in the emo revival yeah. now. We are, so, like, yeah. like, Scott's just waiting in the wings. It's just, like, waiting Yes, I need, I, need, I need the fourth wave. Bring it to me. They're just po- polishing their trombones, <laughs> waiting for their time. Um, but zoot, zoot Suits, so this was, the Zoot Suit, and described in the book, is, like, a way, it's a the rebellious way to dress at mm-hmm. the time, especially yeah. if you're young and black or if you're young and Chicano. Mm-hmm. Um, you, Zoot Suits are, like, they're pants that are like cinched at the waist, cinched at the ankle, and super, super wide. It says they could be as wide as forty inches at the knee. So these are <laughs> these are wild suits, absolutely wild suits. Apparently, um, the war demanded that you know you have to ration cloth. So the idea of like a stylish suit during wartime and during the forties is like a slim suit without a heel yeah. of fabric. And so the suit suit was just like. Fuck that. Fuck your war. I want a pair of gigantic pants. But it's basically, I mean, it's that was just like, that was like the punk, almost the punk rock way to dress. It was. That's in the, the 40s. It was. And that was the way you dressed if you were, you know, a working it, class person it, it who wanted to like go out and enjoy themselves. It was the jinko of the 40s. It, was it kind well, kinda. it kind of was. It kind well, uh, I mean, in aesthetic, it was yeah, in aesthetic, but, aesthetic. but also in that it is a like working class thing, fashion sure, trope. Sure, sure, sure. That yep. is true. Every I'm gonna say next. I mean, I was just in Urban Outfitters a couple of weeks ago. The skinny jeans are back. They are mm-hmm. coming back. They're coming back. Yeah, They're okay. coming back with vengeance. We've had a weird year of pants. Jeans, jeans been wild recently. Jeans have been the, jeans, the knee denim windows. windows. Yeah. Um, and I've just missed it entirely. Like I was, I feel like I've just been in a, a daze in a cloud and I like my eyes were open. I'm like, everyone's wearing different pants than me. Like <laughs> I'm wearing the same pants. Like I've had the same pants for like four years. I'm like, no one is wearing these pants anymore. Oh yeah. People the, have moved on. The jeans of 
I'm gonna say the jeans in New York City, especially, have just gotten wild. They are crazy. Where, also, the fraying of jeans is like just next I th- level. I think fray. I'm gonna get yeah. a zoot suit. I think I'm gonna bring it back. You're gonna get a zoot suit. Yeah, I think I can make this work. So this is like this is the outfit. It's they said the zoot suit draped the rebellious body in a way that said no to racial discrimination, austerity, and the alienation of work. Hell yeah! Wow. Some yes, hardcore yes, pants. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I just I just wanted to have a zoot suit uh, interlude because I just I thought that was cool. Um, and it can give you a sense of the way these people were dressing at the time. Um, what else? So the, I think the other, the to go back to recording format, the way that people like Louis Jordan, um, Wynoni Harris was another, um, like blues shouter. Uh, Hank Williams, the OG Hank Williams. Hell yeah, the best one. The best one. <laughs> the only one, the good one. <laughs> the one true, the one true Hank. Yeah, the one Hank that like every song is like, I'm so sad. I'm so My sad. girl, she left me. My horse, he died. I'm so sad. <laughs> so sad. I mean, I actually love Hank Williams. Hank Williams Sr. is like super good. Can you, you want to pull up a, a Hank? Yeah. yeah, do you have a, a fave? A fave? Um, yeah, um, oh wait, I actually yeah, have no, one. Yeah, yeah I, um, could you like, I'm so lonesome. Oh, yeah. I'm so lonesome I could cry. I think that's what yeah. it's Call. I got that. Yeah. It's... I, I love men getting real about their feelings. I'm, yeah. <laughs> so good. Hear that lonesome whippoorwill. He sounds too blue to fly. Uh, <laughs> uh. The midnight train is whining. I'm so lonesome I could cry. Oh, so beautiful. This is yeah. great. Never seen I mean, no, uh, I, I don't re- I don't mean this as, as offense to Hank Wayne Sr., <laughs> but my dude, your head looks like it's got uh, squished from both sides. <laughs> Guy's got a long face. I mean, to be fair, back in the first half of the 20th century, everyone in the country's face looked like yeah, that. Yeah, it was just a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. It was a different time. Everyone's face just very, very cylinders. Just yeah. Cylinders were on top of bodies. <laughs> cylinders on I mean, that's why, I mean, we look at a cowboy hat back then. The cowboy hats were not wide. They were very narrow. Very yeah. narrow. Just like, go with the face. Yeah. Wow. The oh, my ori- God. I'll say the original cone hats, actually. <laughs> mm. Soulful slide guitar. Yeah, but like this is like so. I actually am a huge Wayne, like Hank Williams like singer fan, and I feel like a lot of old country. And it's just essentially mm-hmm. every song is like I have no money, there are job like I don't have a job, I can't do anything in life because I don't have the basics of, of society that yes. they'd ask. And it's like always the best, the, always the best thing. Yeah, always yeah. the best thing. Which the themes that we've said this before on the pod, you, there's not a lot of songs about being broke right now. No. Even if people, I feel like you either don't talk about it at all or you talk about how much money you have. Yeah. There's not a lot of like, there, really working class music in some ways doesn't really exist Which in a popular format. I would say accounts for some of like the popularity of ICP and stuff like that. I actually have yeah. a theory about this that kind of goes hand in hand with the the evolution of music that we'll talk about at the end of this um, yeah. that's about how this form of popular music like modern popular music since the 50s is born out of this very like lower class conscious mm-hmm. consciously lower class phenomenon mm-hmm. and as that thing then becomes uh, a mechanism of celebrity and idolation it has to get kind of flipped yeah. and I think that that lower class ideology is still baked into pop music but it got inverted through celebrity and 
becoming an industry yes. to have to be only aspirational. And like right now we're, we're in this phase and that's like modern hip hop is yeah. very, very much in that similar mm-hmm. mechanism where we're now in this phase where it's like, so where popular music is so purely in the realm of aspiration that there, that it is almost hilariously hermetically sealed to have no room for like any illustration of poverty or lower class values in it. It has to only be, I'm, I'm rich, I'm powerful, I'm hot, I'm wealthy. Mm-hmm. I, I have, you know, I, I'm the greatest. I am the, you know, the, there is no room for, for any kind of even, even Class a 1% imper- no. impurity. Yeah. No, you only really get that. This is a thing that you get when you actually get to know more musicians or really read good interviews with contemporary musicians where they like complain about mm-hmm. being like, yeah, like it's hard to do this. This isn't really that fun. Yeah. Yeah. Which is mean, what is what your podcast does with all a lot of the books that you read. But even in contemporary artists, like I think it was like even certain rappers, like younger rappers that I know of slightly. I'm yeah. like, oh, God, your yeah. songs are like vaguely happy, but like. You're very sad. Yeah. It's sort of like one of the good things that was Twitter and I guess Instagram before, similarly, before those sort of get just sort of codified in their own sort of ways. Yeah. Is that you would just get a lot of tweets where it's like, I'm just sitting in the studio. I'm just waiting here. Waiting for someone <laughs> to come here so I can record some stuff. Don't really have much money today. Just sort of hunger. And you're just sort of like, oh. Yeah. That's like very real. It's and also, work. Yeah. It's also like not really fun to like actually see that. Yeah. If you're like imagining them supposed to be like, big powerful people yeah yeah, yeah. it kind of undercuts it and that's sort of the thing that i miss about social media in one way was that used to be a lot more yeah transparent yeah and that just got entirely bulldozed down yeah, the last yeah. five or so years interesting i think too also like the mood right now in popular music is very much like it's supposed to be like inspiring and positive and it's not i feel like the messaging is like do like follow your dreams and you can be like me. And mm-hmm. then there's no room for like, Oh, except like I'm not getting paid that much by, you know, my Spotify streams or whatever the fuck there's no room for expressing that there, there can be stuff wrong with your life specifically related to capitalism. Yeah. It's like the grande song, like God is a woman. It's like, yeah. okay, well awesome. That <laughs> means you cool. That means you listener are also potentially God. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think that the, the, like all the stuff that we're talking about is like the, the, the possibility for like material hardship is like ironed out of music. Mm-hmm. And what has replaced any of those negative emotions is like the, the, the like critical devastating portrayal of like being sad. <laughs> that, yeah. That's yeah. like, well, and anxious. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, that that like, and I mean, this is something that I like make fun of in like Drake or the weekend songs or something where, where it's like this, this mood and tone like of that, the worst possible thing in the world for Drake is that he is like sad about something <laughs> that he is like a rich, successful guy with a lot of connections. who's like surrounded by women and fancy things, but his life is in, in any song could be like cri- a critical failure because he's sad about something. And I think that that is where like the total devoid of any material concern is in music is kind of sandwiched in, in another way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a, a kooky theory, theory of <laughs> read of all music, but I, I think it's somewhere in there. It kind of, I think we're going to get to that once we get towards the end of what happens with rock and roll. Cause yeah, I think yeah. one thing I'll just jump ahead a second is that like, the commodification of the actual record industry of the entire working class music economy yeah. mm-hmm. into the, what it eventually becomes 
is to me one of the more perverse versions of American capitalism we got ha- going on. Yeah, here, right? I mean, there's like, I mean, there's like the environment and a bunch of things that are like bad. Yeah. yeah, but like music is like one where it's like, oh, you just like took like the working class people essentially kind of used them as scab labor mm-hmm. against the actual unionized workforce, and then took all of their messages of actual working class struggle and just slowly stripped that out yes. and undercut it and was like, oh, not only do we undercut the actual working class power of uni- of a union, we also undercut the working class message. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that can be easy to, uh, it's an idea that some can be easy to like throw around in like stupid or corny ways. But like the idea of like the mental colonization of, of industry and capitalism is sure. something that is extremely palpably obvious if you look at the history and of the content of like popular music. Yeah, it's very it's almost the thing with music is that it's such on the it's so on the surface. Right. That it's almost like you when you say it, it's like, but that's true. Yeah, like, it is. Yes, it is true. And that is not good. It's like yeah. I was talking to a musician earlier this week about um the idea of like unions and like mm-hmm. what is the role of a potential music like of a, of a more industry more like commercial music industry like music union of of those kind of of artists and he was just like yeah but like people know record labels are bad and i'm like yes but like let's step back a little bit to figure out why yes. they are bad why? and yep. how it became this way and i ended up just like just sending a bunch of emails giving a lot of what this book talks about yeah and he was like i didn't learn all this stuff and i'm like yeah, I know. Yes. No, they don't want you to know this. No, I don't want to say like, they, but like this isn't taught in the normal music history. Yeah, no. And like I read some, I've read, as you guys have done in your pod and I've read so many music books. I've watched so many music documentaries. Mm-hmm. Most of this is just so glossed over. The class context of rock and roll is given a little bit, is always explained. Yeah. But what became before it and just the idea of what a union and what those things actually represent and what they actually, the power that it held He's just entirely forgotten. It's only, I mean, music history is told through individuals. It's always a singular individual is how mm-hmm. it ends up being told. It's why, actually, I wanted to mention this earlier, but like Frank Sinatra is a good early example of this. Mm-hmm. But like Frank Sinatra is really just like a singer, a part of like just sort of a big band. And then it was like, wait, if we have one guy, yeah, that's a lot. I, I, I've never read a record from the 40s say that, but it's like clearly obvious. Like yeah. one guy that all the teenagers love yeah. is probably better than 20 guys. We have to that, fly around. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, ah, let's get the one. And then you're sort of like, oh, well, yeah. that slowly. And then you just sort of like spirals out very, very quickly. From yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Well, let's push a little further ahead yes, in, uh, in the book. Yeah. I was just going to say, let, we can tie this in a bow and just imagine if uh, Hank Williams, instead of being like, I'm sad and depressed because I don't have any money was like, I'm hustling every day, like <laughs> just trying to make it. That, I'm that's... grinding and grinding, trying to get that bread. Yeah. That's 2018 Hank Williams. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's 2018. Just hashtag rise and grind. Um, he'd be like, you know, on on Fiverr, like I eat, I eat, one, I eat coffee for breakfast, one, lunch and dinner. One country song equals one meal. Yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, yes, this is this is what this kind of music is like. Um, to get back to the recording, it was proliferated because jukeboxes were able to uh, uh, get them to more audiences that might not have been able to see them in person. It also created basically like 
almost accidentally created integrated audiences for rock and roll because there were, you know, black DJs playing black music that white teenagers started listening to. And therefore, when they actually went to go see them, can't can't segregate the airwaves, (laughs) can't segregate. the Yeah, that's that's the galaxy. If they could, they they certainly would have. But unfortunately, it's invisible. uh, Is it radiation? I don't know what it is. It's not it's not radiation. I don't know what it is. But to be fair, at one point, because I read a lot about early radio history. Yeah. Navy wanted to control all of radio and eventually <laughs> Herbert Hoover had to be like, no, we're going to not do this. Electromagnetic. It's, a, it's some kind of electromagnetic yeah. wave. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Hoover at one point was like, w- like literally in the 20s, it's like, okay, the Navy, you had it doing World War One. That's fine. Yes. We're going to take it back now. We're not going to let the Navy control this entire thing. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I'm sure there were like Navy officials in like 1923 who are like, listen, if civilians get control of the radio, that is going to be the end of the world. Yes. No, yeah. It, yeah. it was a military concern, which yeah. as, as we all know in America, anything is a military, military concern. concern. Yep. 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 Um, I also just wanted to point out in the book that they he, there's a digression about um, how like little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis play the piano and how that basically subverts like class and cultural norms because yes. they do things like put put their foot up on the piano <laughs> yes. or like yes. bang it's it so really good. hard or like yeah. stand on the bench um, and how like the upright piano as the stand in for like Victorian cultures and more is yes. and like politeness um, gets totally destroyed by rock and roll, like working class rock and roll posturing. Yeah. I just thought that was cool. No, I could imagine like seeing Jerry Lee Lewis play the piano in 1951 and people being like this, what he is doing to that piano is obscene. This simply isn't done. Teenagers. What that man is doing with that <laughs> piano is pornographic and teenagers should not be allowed to look at it's it. It's dangerous. It is dangerous. It's dangerous. Um, I mean, he, he, he does play a piano like he's fucking it. So I mean, it is, it's very, again, the surface level is <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. The yeah, yeah. surface level read of those paranoid parents was correct. Was yes. correct. But yeah, at the end of the day, People are gonna hump the piano. Yeah. Yeah. It's like people will fuck and they will fuck piano. Yes. And they will, yeah. Fuck people that, will fuck, fuck that piano, Jerry Lee Lewis. Just don't fuck your cousin. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> um. So there's also obviously this is all of this amazing kind of burbling up of rock music is not. Uh, not accepted by the union. Um, what is accepted by the union at this point? Once unions become I'm just integrated, pipe in a little yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis. Okay, great. Um, once unions are are integrated, is like jazz, yeah. or as they refer to it, as like black classical music. Yeah. Um, and how the you know it kind of explains that jazz uh, and bebop specifically is like the highbrow intellectual choice, and some of these people like um, Charlie Parker, Charles Mingus are sort of explicitly anti-rock and roll, anti-R&B, anti-blues because they think it's vulgar. Yeah, it's like, again, the like the inner, like the, it's in that particular instance, the black sort of like class, like class yeah. divide is yes. very, very apparent, which like it's, is, hap, is still happening now in various ways, but in music is always very clear to be like, oh, people don't like this form of jazz because it's lower class. Like, we like the higher form. Same would happen in funk, same happen in yeah. rap. Yeah. It's like always, same even like sort of different variants of techno, like, the like class divide yes. amongst amongst sort of like black and even more and um even like more Hispanic communities like of those genres it's like it's always very it's all again always very on the surface right, it's right. always on the surface mm-hmm. even in 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 music text it's on the surface but it's never properly con- this is why I like love this book because it actually contextualizes mm-hmm. a little bit of that yes. where usually it's like oh well some of the people just didn't like that form of music <laughs> and they just don't really justify yeah. any explanation for why they didn't like it in the ramifications for not liking this form of music yes. right and one one interesting thing that this book explained about bebop in particular was that 
because Bebop was pretty much exclusively black, at least in its early years. Yeah. Um, they part of the reason for making Bebop so sort of like esoteric, complicated was because black people were trying to play music that white people couldn't <laughs> copy. Yes. And I think Very that's good. so cool. Yeah. Like because on um, you know, you know, R and B or blues was obviously co-opted and uh altered by like Elvis Presley eventually and folks folks like that. But like Bebop was sort of purposefully obtuse as a sort of a protection of black culture. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's sort of similar to what happens later on with other forms of jazz, like acid mm-hmm. jazz and all that other kind of stuff that happens li- like late later on in, in the decades pro- in the decades coming forth. <laughs> I say coming forth as if like this coming in the future. But coming yeah. forth jazz. in this book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. coming forth in the book. Forth in the past. Um so yeah, so you basically have this idea of like first class music uh, musicians and second class musicians. Yeah, I think that that's also really interesting is like almost a historical anomaly that that divide between jazz and, and popular music in the 50s is like maybe the only time in history where b- black people were able to like uh, in American history were able to like say that the the white form is inferior and like they actually that yeah. you actually had ownership. In a, yeah. 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 The 50s were very interesting. Top. The, the one yeah. thing I like about the book is like it does make the 50s in particular just feel like a very alien time for yeah. a lot of these politics. Because once it gets to where we're about to get to in the 60s, it's yeah. like, oh, okay. I kind of yeah, understand how this like kind of goes. Yeah. Things, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the there were, are quoted bebop musicians of people saying that rock music is. Uh, musically trite it's obviously gimmicked up with old boogie woogie phrases <laughs> pseudo, pseudo spanish guitar rhythm <laughs> recurring triplets uh ad nauseum i like that one because triplets are, are back. triplets they're are back, back baby. baby they're good again <laughs> um i dizzy gillespie suggested that if children were uh, educated specifically about jazz, if they grew up educated about jazz, they would never even try to listen to rock and roll music. <laughs> they would never choose If only we can get, God, uh, get oh, sorry, bebop <laughs> back in in schools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually think that's not the most unreasonable thought. Yeah. yeah. In terms of like, yeah, I mean, if you indoctrinate kids from an early, <laughs> early age, <laughs> you got them, it, which is essentially true. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's how all advertising just works. Right, yeah, right. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're like, well, you're only listening to Bebop, there'll be no other options. Yes. <laughs> is that good? Well, we could debate that, but it's certainly, it will certainly work. It's effective. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in their children, it doesn't really matter. They don't oh, yeah. have rights. It's fine. Right. Yeah, no, play bebop for children from the age of zero to 10 and then introduce them to like a distorted guitar and they'll be like, what no, is this? no. God, ah, stop. bad, wrong. <laughs> I one more pentatonic saxophone <laughs> solos. <laughs> I guess bebop would use uh, probably a, like what, Mixolydian scales or something? Yeah. Pentatonic is more for rock. Yeah. And roll. That's the yeah. simple one. Um, so yeah, let's, let's move into the sixties. So this is, um, they kind of get into like the, I, I didn't really know much about this and I don't know if you do like the payola scandal of 1958. Do you want to probably do a whole episode on this? I'm right now. Payola, I've read a lot of books about payola. Um, payola, the payola scandal essentially was that like, okay, I just want to like make a preface the idea of payola is fucking ridiculous mm-hmm. the uh, payola in every other industry is a, it's a quote a book that i don't remember the name of it's just called lobbying in every right. other industry it's yes. no real different yeah payola from in the music contest essentially is like underhand the table like paying money to record to um radio stations or whoever promotes music to promote your particular music right. and in the 1950s it became like a big scary thing mm-hmm. because it mostly involved like black music and then like 
well, black music and then again, just working class working music class that people music. were scared of, scared of. They were like, we don't want people to hear these other tunes. These are scary tunes. And that essentially it brought down Alan Freed and it brought down Dick Clark. And the thing that I did not know before I read a lot about payola. Yeah. I didn't know where the AFM came in this, but the yeah. AFM and their artists were like, yeah, we're against payola. Cause like <laughs> they were uh, uh, again, aligned with ASCAP who was against BMI and BMI again was representing most of the music that was being payola right. and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. Right. So it ended up creating this kind of like interesting cross mix of like what of like sort of like this white upper class and sort of black upper not upper class like sort of upper middle just sort of like waftier class of people being like against sort of the working class younger like generational divide with the payola scandal which essentially i think this is what the book and it sort of intimates that that's sort of like the break breaking point with it and then eventual proper rock and roll as we know it yeah right Cool. So that that happens. Um, there's like kind of a almost a fallow period in the like late 50s, early 60s in American music, American rock and roll that it's like schlock rock or like brill building mm-hmm. uh, sound um, that the sort of like dangerous working class aspect um, has been sort of erased for the time being. But um, guess who comes to town? It's the Beatles. (laughs) It's those lads from Liverpool. So this is all of this stuff, all of the like the the class, the highbrow versus lowbrow um, union versus rock and roll. All this kind of comes to a head with um, with the Beatles uh, coming to America in 1964, having a very successful tour. And then there's this agreement between the AFM and the British Musicians Union, which is basically like how they can exchange, how they can allow mm-hmm. each other's musicians to come into their countries yeah. and perform. Yeah. Known as Oi, Pay Me Bloody Musicians. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. That's good. Yeah. <sighs> Um, yeah, so they, you know, trying to preserve their own jobs while allowing um, uh, musicians that are thought to be uniquely talented mm-hmm. to come to each other's countries. Um, Your super musicians. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Musician mu- mutants. I'm going to say um, the ones that, that don't even need the music. They like they don't even need music to read the music. They just like, yeah. their head just creates <laughs> the yeah. music. Yes, it. yes. Uh, the president of the AFM, Howard Kennan, decides that uh, the Beatles are not uniquely talented. <laughs> um, he thinks that he basically thinks that any any musician in America could perform the same music that the, music that the Beatles perform. Not um, untrue. Uh, I mean, if, if the Beatles wrote it first, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but then exactly. again, we get back into the, the what the fundamental issue here is the difference between writing, reading, performing, mm-hmm. playing. I mean, it, it is almost like it is like an anomaly that uh, uniquely divided anomaly that is like the the mix of celebrity and music that we do do things like have the Beatles come from Britain to play here instead yeah. of being like oh they're popular here let's get four guys to just play their songs here instead of paying those guys to come over here it's just music you know yeah anybody can play it yeah, yeah. this is again why music is one of the weirder genres yeah, yeah. in turn like the weirder like just feels in terms of a lot of these issues mm-hmm. in politics it's just because there's just a lot of issues just being sort of conflated all yeah. at once yeah um so yeah they he's thinks that the beatles are are not uniquely talented um the beatles are, are coming into our country and stealing our jobs <laughs> <laughs> um, Folks, when, when when britain sends their musicians they're not sending their best 
<laughs> sending these, these mop-headed boys. They're going to come here and take all our skiffle jobs. The, be- the Beatles caravan is coming to America, <laughs> and he wants none of it. Um, he completely, he uh, to use a, a rest, my favorite word from Arrested Development, he misunderestimates how much people <laughs> love the Beatles, especially teenagers, and uh, the idea that the Beatles could be banned from touring in America becomes a huge uproar. You know, dozens of hundreds of teens write letters uh, <laughs> pleading for, you know, insulting, so pleading. Funny to imagine like a teen letter writing campaign to a union rep. <laughs> <laughs> I Insane. mean, it's, it's yeah. essentially like, a, it's essentially imagining being like, it'd be like BTS fan, like BTS fans, like that K-pop group. Yeah, yeah. Like yes. Adding like the AFL-CIO being like, why are you not allowing them to come into the country? Let them work. Give them visas. <laughs> I, I would like to read one of these uh, one of these letters. Uh, dear, uh, okay, who's Mr. Wirtz? Oh, Sec- Secretary Wirtz. Is he like a, he, it, it, it gets into Congress. Like this is literally <laughs> oh, yeah, a, is a, a congressional issue. I'm, I'm just imagining like a, a congressional testimony where like the Senator is like, um, so uh, I, I, I'm reading here uh, from a Twitter a tweet uh, l- labeled uh, dis- August 31st, uh, 2018. It says here, uh, at uh, uh, Britney Spears, yes, queen, you did that. Now, now <laughs> sir, did she, in fact, do that? <laughs> so the one thing I want to say, just as a quick giant aside, is yeah. that like one of the best things about the music industry that is very in- intertwined with the U.S. government. Yeah. So like there are a lot of things. So like there's been this thing called the Music Modernization Act, which is one of the few things that like just had bipartisan support. Yes. Right. Actually, Trump signed it. And but it's sort of funny because it's yeah, like, which is why oh, it was why, why Kid Rock and Kanye yeah. were at the White, at House, the White House. So like for like, this thing, that's the in- like that's sort of the in- one of the weird just like again whole other episode probably you guys should do. Which is like <laughs> the inner like the intertwining of the government and music is. So so strange. It's yeah. weird, and it, that uh, off the top of your head, you can think of like Tipper Gore in Congress or Metallica lobbying against Na- Napster. Napster. It's like you can, yeah. without even doing any research, you can think of like several uh, huge events that were like Congress talking about mm-hmm. fucking Metallica. Yeah, we're like in mo- like television, none. Yeah, you can none. Any single one. Movies, you have like the oh, Hayes Code, yeah, and a couple a of ones, but not in the last like the last. 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Nothing. But like music, for some reason, which I guess might be one of the enduring qualities of music is that it does stretch out that far. Yeah. Out. yeah. But like, yeah, like the government is like so intertwined in how music is just sort of being conceptualized and how it's like regulated too. Yeah, yeah. So it's like kind of like this funny thing. So the idea of their teenagers like writing to like writing to like senators is like funny but like actually makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Like I guess this is what senators should do is make sure that the music is happening or not happening like <laughs> that kind of makes sense i guess, I guess uh, here here's a letter written to uh uh Her- herman cannon from uh, the afm dear mr cannon we have discovered that you are trying to keep those fabulous wonderful <laughs> tremendous beetles out of the united states we have never th- heard of anything so shocking in all of our lives we don't know much about this cultural exchange bit, but since you don't think that they are a culture, why don't you go mess up the affairs of someone else? You really have a lot of nerve trying to keep them out of the United States. But if you can brainwash the, the authorities into doing it, you can just say goodbye to us, teenagers. We're all moving to England. And to think that all this time we thought that America was a free country. Sometimes we wonder. Sincerely, Bonnie Wilkins. Oh my I God. don't. Uh, the, the thing that's annoying about this book is that I read. I read this book from. I read the book and I was like, I want to be on the side of the union. I'm ready to stand yeah. for the union. And then I read the teenager letters and I was like, 
I mean, like, this is not incorrect, though. No. Yeah. Like, you kind of got a point there. Yeah. And also, she's right. Like, yeah, you are kind of fucking it up. Like, we're yeah. definitely not going to, like, support you guys if you're going to do this kind of fuck shit. Yeah. Right. right. No, it's, they just, I think they just did not understand how popular the Beatles are. Yeah. No. They, I think they just thought of them as, like, four workers that they weren't going to let work. <laughs> yeah. But they're so much more than that. I'm going to defect to North Korea until uh, the government allows Stormzy to tour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, is Stormzy not allowed to tour? No, I, I, sure I was gonna say, we actually saw him in America, so. Yeah. I was going to say, I'd be like, wait, please protect Stormzy. Bring Stormzy. Bring in, like, is Stormzy on the caravan? Please bring in Stormzy. Bring in Stormzy. We will, we will shelter Stormzy. Yes. So, um, the, obviously, the, the Beatles are, are allowed, to, allowed to come in. Yes. Um, they, they are, in fact, uniquely talented, it turns out. Um, the, so A this Senate is, subcommittee ruled in the favor that the Beatles <laughs> are uniquely talented. This is... <laughs> This is, I mean, it's basically just like the the sort of most exemplary uh, situation of just the unions being super head ass about what people actually want, mm-hmm. and then the battle of like what culture is. Yeah. Um. My God. And then also, like, incidentally, and this is where I think we can start talking about kind of where the recording industry has turned out. Um, the Beatles are representing this kind of end of an era of having like session musicians and songwriters at all because here's they a, are a band who writes a, their own music and records their own music themselves. Yeah. Here's a and little so, bit of the Beatles finally being allowed in America. Ed Sullivan, 1964. Great. Just imagine hearing this and being like, wow. I'm ready to like fight someone. Like, I'm ready to write a letter. Yeah. I'm yes. ready to like I'm scream. ready to defect from my home country for twist and shout. <laughs> and also I am ready to like like meet them at like a hotel yeah. and maybe fight someone, maybe fight someone, maybe fight, like do whatever it takes <laughs> yeah. to see them. Like I mean teen- critical support for the twi- twist. Yeah, like teen- I mean I guess this is still true today. Teens just when they hear that music, yeah. just something takes them over. <laughs> The pa- the power of teens is is vast yes. and unknowable. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is what happens when labor laws eventually start working. I guess this is the problem. You know what? Maybe unions were wrong. Maybe we should have had child labor. <laughs> we would have stopped. We would have crushed teenagers. We just let them have to start work at thirteen. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> when I get my time machine, I'm gonna like fix this. Yeah, that's like I'll be like, we're gonna get it so they are fairly compensated, but they will be working yes. hard lap hours. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to play that because I believe in 38 episodes, uh, this is the first opportunity we've had to play, play the Beatles? Beatles on this show. Whoa. Weird. Yeah. I know we talked about them when like Ronnie Spector went to hang out with John Lennon yeah. and they like watched people have sex on a bed. And also uh, George Harrison. <laughs> George Harrison was, thought was, that the Supremes, Supremes were going to be, be cooler. harder party years, but yeah. they were told by their management <laughs> that they, they needed to cool it down. <laughs> They had, to, they had to be, uh, you know, good model citizens. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. That must have been so disappointing for him. He's <laughs> like, I expected to at least do three different kinds of drugs. Yeah. yeah. We were going to throw down with the Supremes. And they were like, would you like to play some backgammon? <laughs> <laughs> it's like this backgammon. Is that cocaine? <laughs> is, that like, is that a code word for something? So, yeah, we this is where we kind of reach, reach the end of the book, but the beginning of uh, you know, a complete change in how record labels work, how labor and music mm-hmm. ends up working. So should we should we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So essentially where the book ends is to me where the hell world began. <laughs> yeah. Because essentially once we get at the end of the book, so I like reread the final chapter while I was on the train here here earlier today. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of like, oh, so this would explain why one contracts are bad. Yes. <laughs> so I always think of it like this. I've been thinking about a lot where it's like, why, like what are the issues with like labor in the music industry? There are millions. 
one so it's one of the basic ones it's a contract yes you will yeah. sign a contract and you essentially have no way to like bargain this contract mm -hmm. you are a sole proprietor going against a billion dollar corporation the power i mean there's not even really like a power dynamic it's just like you're being steamrolled and then steamrolled and then steamrolled mm -hmm. and yeah. though you have to sort of deal with that yeah where like at least before when you were a session musician you had like a basic like guideline a basic set of like rules that you should be like they should be following in an essential like the baseline of payment mm -hmm. yeah. or like contracts eh. and then contracts <laughs> also do this amazing thing that is across industry not just the music industry of like putting the money up front yes. and then saying actually this is all the money you're ever going to get right everything else comes eventually maybe down the line yeah. and it's like oh that also was like one of like you would imagine a unionized workforce you would be like wait a minute you should just pay me a normal fee. Yeah. <laughs> and then another thing, and then you guys can go, is I also just been, this has been racking my mind the last few weeks. Like, mm. artists don't have health care. Oh my yeah. God, no. They don't have health care, which is like patently obvious. I actually would like to write a story about this at some point. So, like, I'm just going to pin this is that artists don't have health care. And I was reading an, an article like a week ago where it was like, Artists, like music artists, traditionally have like a 20 to 25 year shorter lifespan than average people. My God. That makes sense. And yeah. you're like, I wonder why they have a shorter lifespan. And then you like read about the lives of actual yeah, yeah. famous artists and you see all the shit that they go through. Yeah. Mentally, like health wise, all this other stuff. And then you're also like, then like the average ones don't have health care. Right. And you're like, in any other industry, we would be like, this is abhorrent. We right. need like Congress. We need to fix this. We <laughs> yeah. need to like try to like go in. We need to send the troops to go save these artists because like, they're not getting health care. They're dying at a rapid yeah, yeah. rate. Yeah. Like the best ones are dying in their early 20s. And like, yeah, it's just we don't know. We, we got to fix this. And nothing. nothing. Yeah. Silence. There's nothing happening. With that. Th this just reminds me of one of my faves right now is Mitski. And Mitski posted, I think, on Twitter a while ago. And she was basically like. A lot of people have been asking me how I have cleared my skin. Like she had like if you watch videos of her from a few years ago, like she clearly has like a lot of like cystic acne mm -hmm. and she's since like cleared her skin. And she's basically like the reason I got to do this is because I started making more. I became more successful. I started making more money. I was able to access healthcare, which I assume she like bought on the exchange or something. Yeah. It's not like it's being provided. She's probably no. on Oscar or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, was able to like, you know, get a doctor and work with a doctor to clear my skin. And I was just like, that's like the realest I've ever heard anyone like a yeah. musician be about the realities of healthcare when you're a musician, especially like an indie mu yeah. musician or whatever she might be considered as like, it is ah it it blew my it broke my but, brain. But like then the oh there are two things. One, the fan reaction to that was like, wait, why are you bragging about having good skin now? Insane. And it was like, you asked no, me. No, you asked. It's like, wait, what? What? Do you, did you not like? Did you just miss the entirety of what I just said? And then the other thing is that Mitski in her interviews, which shouts shouts to Mitski. Um, Mitski, oh, come on the show. Yeah, Mitsuki's please. Great, Mitski's great. Um, but the thing that it's great about her is that like she in her interviews are just like. I thought I was just reading this yesterday. She was just like, I thought if I got this as a career, I would just make music all day. And then I realized I just spend about 10% of my time making music and the other nine of her time just doing business stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I sort of realized I'm probably not going to want to do this forever. So I'm trying to figure out ways so I can start to eventually get out of doing this. And I was just like, Wow, um, yeah. this is like the um, this should be like the actual like this should be the American. This is the American dream right, right here. Right. It's like, yes. oh, I thought I was gonna get a job, and then when I got the job, I realized, 
oh, actually, this job is not really that good. How do I get a better job are, out of this? Are you yes. telling me that she was looking for a job and then she found a job and heaven knows no, she's, she's miserable, miserable now? now. <laughs> My God. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, for first, just on healthcare, it's uh, it, it it's just like it's crazy how the answer to wellness questions is usually like, well, I got money. I got money and I went to the doctor. Yes. It's not like, oh, I used this new $7 my cellar water. I didn't, I got a new snail, snail mucin (laughs) serum and all my zits disappeared. Yes. I went to a fucking dermatologist and the copay was probably like 80 bucks. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then just back a little bit to the contracts thing, because that is something that comes up over and over and over on the show Mm -hmm. about how young musicians get their first big break oh, oh, different ways of portraying it be like, Oh, they should have been smarter when they're younger. But it is like what the thing that they are offered is like, we will give you an advance and basically an allowance mm-hmm. and keep all the money that you may actually make off of your thing and basically put you in like financial servitude to the record industry because you don't have any other options. Yeah, and what, you, what are you going to do? Hire your own lawyer to look over their paperwork? Mm-hmm. With what money? Yeah. Also, most lawyers in the music industry play both sides. Right. That's yeah. the other like quasi-evil. I was talking to someone at, actually at a major about this where he was just sort of like just kind of joking because we were both kind of like gallows humor joking being like, yeah, like it's sometimes weird that like the lawyer who's representing our artists are also like representing us. That's <laughs> a little strange. It's it doesn't really weird. make sense. <laughs> Is that how lawyers work? Can somebody with a law degree tell me? Yeah, it's like, I don't think that's like should be how this goes, but like you realize it is and you're like, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And th- I mean, it's like, it's also that the, as, as we mentioned a little bit before, like the celebrityification of music, which is, you know, in a, in a way good because artists should be celebrated for the stuff that they work. But the, the material thing that happens once you become more than just a, your labor, which is creating music, you become an, commodified object yourself which is the celebrity Mm -hmm. the pop star Mm -hmm. um is then doubly exploited exploitable because it's not just your labor the thing that you do and produce to that is is exploited but then it is also your very life that is yeah commodified and put into the hands of an industrial force that you have very little like leverage against other than your then inherent value which is your celebrity yeah there's just so many things. So I, I, there's so many things that are bad about the music industry that this book sort of to me like highlights. I would have loved if this book just sort of went on for another 40 more years yeah. to start really like digging into some of this. So like a thing that like I wrote, so I like earlier this week, I wrote a story that was about like the MP3 and like sort of like yes. the sort of like the greatness of the MP3 and just how the record industry just crushed it. Just crushed it. It's like, good and we will link to it in the show description. And so like one <laughs> of the things that I like mentioned, that was like a really side note that I like entirely forgot about or maybe I just didn't, I don't know if I didn't know, but like in the mid 1990s. So, I just want okay, so like one step back. Records as a concept, it's just bullshit. There's no reason that records should cost however much they ever cost it. Yes. Like I remember watching a CBS documentary where at some point they were like, Yeah, the record industry is trying to get rid of singles and trying to push albums because albums cost more. But they're kind of concerned that if we do that, we may like lose the teenage fan that only can <laughs> afford to pay so much money, as you were sort of yeah. saying earlier. Yeah. And then what happened? They eventually just sort of slowly crushed out the single, yeah. got to the album, and then were like, wait a minute. We, these aren't selling enough. We need a new format. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, oh, wait a minute. CDs. It's like we have the, the, the single and then they had like the, the CD single and yeah. then like the actual single. CD. Oh and then God. they got rid of the CD single. But when they got rid of the CD single, which is like entirely like kind of written out of like the 
music. I read so much music biz stuff. Yeah. It's always written out where it's like, when they got rid of the CD single, they also jacked up the prices yeah. of CD, of albums. Yeah. But they were also taken to the government, regulated them, and were like, you guys, we're going to fine you because you literally colluded to raise the price of CDs with like stores. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is just one of the worst in yeah. history. There's nothing like redeemable here. There wasn't like, there was like, oh, well, we're going to raise the price of the CD to like give more money back to the to artist. Artists. It was yeah. like, no, we just raised the price of the CD. So instead of you paying $2 to get that one song you want, we need you to pay $18.99 to get that yes. one song. And it's like, Oh, well, I'm so happy. And then it's like when Napster came along, they were like, oh, well, Napster <laughs> and piracy is ruining the industry. And then we actually like read studies and then read the actual like business stories. It's like there's like very little like tangible proof that piracy ever hurt music sales. Yeah. Yeah. It's not actually like a thing that is actually like true. It's just like a received wisdom yeah. that doesn't actually like there's no real facts to back it up. And we actually even look at when the music industry started cratering. It was years after Napster. Decade plus after the idea is even like, I mean, because things like illegal downloads are just way before Napster. Mm -hmm. So it was a decade after that. And it was just sort of like, well, yeah, these started going down because you introduced the iTunes store and, and like digital downloads. So you had more options that were cheaper. Mm -hmm. And so people started buying less CDs. Yeah. And, and I'm possibly sure. doing the thing with that they always wanted, which is buying just the songs that they wanted. Exactly. And then it's sort of like, well, why is that all of a sudden, like all of a sudden the industry's dying? And it's like because of, uh, because of piracy. And it's like, no. And then you get the fucked up thing, which is like my big bugaboo recently, which is that bugaboo. That's a horrible word. I'm like, sound like I'm a grandma. <laughs> um, I like bugaboo. bugaboo. And so was that, Artists are now put in this insane position mm -hmm. to have to defend the industry to be like, hey, when you don't buy our music, we don't get money. Yeah. Right. But were they ever getting money when you bought their music? Right. right. I mean, that's the thing about the, the idea of the collapse of the record industry is that given that it's what its essential commodity is and what the demand for it is, was there ever a real industry? It's like if, if you're idea is built around this discrete unit of songs mm -hmm. and then you for 50 years you built this entire thing where you had to buy like an album of 20 songs that you might like three of them or whatever and like people were writing so the way that musicians wrote music was to create albums because that is what was sold so this like chunk of songs that were an album is like an industrial product mm -hmm. rather than like an innate there's no like innate artistic thing that's like that's like, well, I'm a musician, so the way that I think is in chunks of eight to fifteen songs. I would disagree. I, I would say that sometimes people pro they approach an album in the same yeah, way that someone might true. have approached a symphony. That's that's yeah, true. Yeah. That's true. But it, but, uh, but it, you're you know, right that it is. It's the at least in times of records, it was retrofitting yeah, to the format. Yeah. It was there, this there, is there how are, much music can literally fit. They're at least mutually yes. Uh, uh, mutually the limitations together. create the yeah. the. The, the creative approach. So now that we get back to, and this is kind of where I want to wrap up this episode is where we are now, because we're in a very fascinating place for, I would say two reasons that both the atomization of distribution again, through this, the streaming revolution, which uh, obviously there are good things about access, but also very terrible things about access and also compensation. Mm -hmm. But then also the other fascinating thing about right now is the destruction of one of the most essential things about industry in our world uh control over the means of production which is that yeah. many many musicians are able to go out and buy a, the cheapest laptop they have and control mm -hmm. all the same means of production that a record label yeah. and like studio would originally would in previous generations own so there is increasingly less use at all for 
any kind of music industry in general. Yes. You know, because like I, the SoundCloud rapper can produce a song on software that comes with my computer Mm -hmm. and release it on the totally free service SoundCloud and get as much exposure as the Beatles got through their record deal in the 60s, if not more, because literally every person on earth with an internet connection can instantly listen to my music that I created for free. Yeah. But the only issue is sort of the, then it goes back to compensation. Right. And then how you essentially, this is where like the record industry is different than the music industry. Yeah. Because the record industry doesn't serve a function for that person anymore. Mm -hmm. What they now need is the music industry of live music and performing shows and doing all these other sort of maybe doing merch and all these other ancillary things. Yeah. Yeah, That like essentially can make it so they can start making money off of their thing. Yeah. But the record industry now essentially exists in this amazing vampiric way where essentially (laughs) streaming is just I, I I write I write a news I write a weekly newsletter about stream, about music streaming called Penny Fractions, which is slowly becoming more and more about labor because I just like can't I've been like trying to suppress that yeah. from it, but I'm now just like I can't not <laughs> just talk about this more. But like essentially, when because artists for the last five years have complained like we aren't getting paid enough on stream. That's been like a consistent right. complaint. It's even YouTube, and it's like, but you guys, why would you're going to be paid on your streams? The right. Streams never meant anything. There wasn't like. People weren't paying money. There was like, it's like, oh, well, like there are ads. Like I remember like reading records like being like, well, there are ads. We should get paid for the advertising. And it's like, you're like your song that you spent a million dollars to make is getting the same ad view as this like video of a dog shitting itself. Right. Like, I mean, like if that's like what you're like, if that's the, the battle you're willing to fight then you kind of already lost the war. Right. Not like there's no real point to like try to like get those scraps, but like they're yeah. going, they're going for those scraps. And then the other thing is, so it's like, okay, well, if that's like, if streaming is just kind of nonsense, because mostly, because almost also the thing with like contemporary record dealers that like almost all the money. So like when you sign that advance, all the money that you should be making come from streaming and the record labels essentially grab all the streaming money. Like I remember it was like this rapper, Lil Pump. I think it was a rumor that his deal, he got like 66% of CD royalties. Uh-huh. If you could find a Lil Pump CD, please email me. <laughs> please email me at, d- at dlatu.com at gmail.com. Please email me. But because I don't think that it even fucking exists. So like they like, but like that's the kind of thing that like that, that happens now where yeah. like essentially you have like, this one entire new mode of music consumption that the labels have essentially been like, wait a minute, this costs us nothing. Yeah. And we can just get all the profit because when we sign our artists, they are not going to be getting anything from it. And it's right. like, well, what purpose do you serve them? Right. It's like right. you just essentially exist to promote them. Yeah. And yeah. they, and, but then they also are signing like 360 deals. We're also getting everything else included. And right. it's just like, this is like, again, I think I said earlier, maybe right before we started recording, one of the w- most perverted forms of American capitalism right. is to me the, the record industry. Because what the music industry then essentially does is has commodified the mechanism of commodification. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Right. My brain. Yeah. You can, in fact, order a little pump CD. I have it on Amazon for $11.42. You 42. can get a physical CD of Lil Pump's album, Lil Pump. 
Oh wow! I'm, oh, it's self-titled. Yeah, I'm nice. sure. I'm sure it sold like probably like 37 copies. Yes. I mean, who, I, yeah. Who owns Who owns a little pump CD? I, I have please, my yeah. seven disc changer. Uh, <laughs> please with, talk to. I just yes. yeah. I just we just want to talk to you. We <laughs> yeah. just want to talk. Yes, please email us uh, if you. Uh, own a, own a physical copy of Lil Pump's uh, music. I want to know everything about or your you life. Bought a, or have you bought a rap CD in the last year? Honest, period, yes. Honestly, I wonder if like Lil Pump or any of these guys uh, produced vinyl because I'm sure there are many people if there is a Lil Pump vinyl who own the Lil Pump vinyl because there is like a, it's a, a collector. Collector's is a talisman-like uh, uh, thing. There, I, I am very big into the, the physical ritual of actually putting on a uh, uh, the the uh, 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 an album versus like using a CD or something. Yeah, yeah. That's no, how you get them because I, you have to actually physically do a thing to listen to your music, and there's something important about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are certainly some of those people, but again, that's sort of like it's just such like a that's such a, like a fringe thing. Yeah, like, that's sort of like, that is like I mean the music the contemporary music energy. There's just so many things that this book sort of highlight but i get this i want to like circle back to one like the union and mm-hmm. sort of the fall of the of the american federation musician yeah. in relation to what is happening now is that there are no standards there are right. no baseline of anything like when i like i was talking to someone over this weekend it was sort of like yeah the idea of like unionization of, of more contemporary or like I'll use the big scare quotes of like pop musicians, be it producers, be it rappers, country singers, like whatever. The issue would be like, they're just infinite scab labor because one of the best things the music industry did, unlike a lot of, like a number of industries are very good about being like, Hey, you can work as Facebook. You're changing the world. Like I literally was had, I was at a birthday like a couple weeks ago and a guy literally was like, yeah, I work at Facebook and like, I feel like I'm doing good for the world. And I was just like, Oh my God. But like, I get (laughs) caught into it. But like the music industry, as your pod shows and as the movie industry, the book industry have just propagated for almost the last 50 years. It's like, you know what? If you just work hard enough, you can become a rock star. And when you become a rock star, it'll be awesome. Yeah. And that is great. <laughs> and that has just been like, see, like just seeding this constant generation after generation of free labor yeah. that will be just constantly ready to be exploited and ready to essentially sell their soul. Right. And it's like, Oh God! Yeah. Like this is like there's like so it's just like so dark because you're like, well, can you guys like band together and be like, well, there's like an army of thirteen year olds that have all the means of like all they need to make all the music as yeah, well yeah. as they as the professional. Yeah, it's like oh, there's just so. I mean, capitalism worked really well on this one. Like it's one of the yeah. better like like capitalism like just like swamp they, like yeah. really like nailed out of the park with music. They did that. Uh, yeah, I feel like I foresee a future not of like collectivization, but of like individual patronage. Yeah, I yeah. think the future is is people, you know, blowing up on whatever form of social media it might be. They create fans. Fans will basically directly pay them and they will subcontract the work of, you know, booking them at festivals, yeah. printing their T-shirts, all of that stuff. And then maybe they there are like will... agencies or something that do that for, yeah. or yeah. Like contract out. But it'll, I feel like I mean, it'll always grind into the same format of That's my living right now. Yeah. And, and also, honestly, I was thinking of like- We're going to the Medici area, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, well, except it goes, it goes the other way. It though, goes the other way. That the, the masses pay, yeah. pay the fave instead of a single Grass, patron. Grassroots. Oh, uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I was thinking of like, what what is, what is to be done here? Of like, what, is there like a future of musicians union? And just thinking about like, kind of as a joke in my head, the idea of a streamers union. Because it is like all these sites, and I, and I was just like looking it up and realizing that like Chapo Trap House streams on Spotify. Mm-hmm. They we're hosted on their service. 
do we get any money from that? I don't think so. If you if you don't know whether you do, then you probably don't. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like we are, we have. F- they are taking free product from us, and we are not getting anything back. And yeah. that is, I mean, we have the same material interest in it as Little Pump. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, like, this is why actually there are like two like these are like my closing points is that actually so like the um, the screen guild. Are you the, pulling up some pump? Sorry. Yeah. We're gonna yeah. Old gang. <laughs> okay. So the Screen Actors Guild of America, the screen the Screen Actors Guild of they also combine for another union that is like five other words I can't remember right now. Okay. But like yeah. the Screen Actors Guild, they actually do have a contract with like the m- major labels where essentially it's like what we, you described at the very top of what the American Federation of Music Musicians did mm-hmm. where it was like, hey, a percentage of what we produce comes back to us and it goes actually that goes to actually a healthcare fund. Yeah. So actually it's like, oh, so what and they in their last contract, I think it was three years ago, they made it so all the stream all the streaming percentages, some of that would go towards their healthcare fund. And you're mm-hmm. like Okay. Yeah. There's like at least some, like there's yeah. at least some grain where like if there is an actual body that exists, they can go to these places and be like, we're going to take some of this and get it back to our people. Yeah. Like that is possible. And honestly, like I know it's hard to, when we're talking about like or, the, the necessity of organized labor to drum up sympathy for like celebs and famos. But like if something existed like that for like huge pop star musicians where they where like a, they all like unionized and had a portion of their proceeds go into some big fund. So when, I don't know, somebody like gets injured and can't perform anymore or yeah. has a huge lawsuit or, or has like, a terrorist bombing at their concert. concert yes. yes, exactly. Yeah. That there, there is, or honestly like gets old and can't be a fucking international pop star anymore mm-hmm. and needs the kind of sec- permanent security that being a, like a future style like, what do you think Future's retirement fund looks like? This is very dark. Please do not. <laughs> <laughs> dark like, you know what I mean? Like, he, he can. I bet it's a perfectly, you know, out. diversified portfolio <laughs> of stocks, bonds, and real estate investment yes, trusts. Yeah, sure. But, you know, he can he can crank out, like, whatever he does, like a mixtape a month uh, for a while. But I don't know how long that serves his interests in general. And, I mean, I hope Future has a long and healthy life. Yeah. I really hope so, too. But also, one of the things that's very glaringly true to be dark for a minute is like I remember I had to like I heard an Avicii song earlier this year yes. and I had to remember oh yes he died he died and then I like remembered he, oh yes like I was talking to like a friend and I was like mentioned his Mac Miller and he was like oh I was like oh yes he also died, he died. Yeah. and it was like XXX and oh also Does oh he was killed yeah. Yeah. but like still like yeah. the shortness of the life expectancy of these artists, especially when it comes to like issues of mental health, yeah. which yeah. is essentially like what happens when an artist, to be frank, kills themselves. Right. What we end up doing is RIP, gone too soon. Yeah. And there's no discussion of like what, what led happened? to this. Yeah. Why are there no industry? Why just safety net? They're like, and they're like organizations that are like, we donate to this or we want to help mm-hmm. with this. And it's like, but if they're like a thing that is actually like when I sign my contract, I can go to a therapist. Right. Yeah. They're just like, where does that exist? Like, where is the therapy clause in your contract? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the like thing Demi, some- Demi Lovato is probably paying for her treatment out of pocket right, right. now. Sure. Think oh. about that. And she can afford to do that. Imagine yeah. if you're like two steps below Demi Lovato yeah. mm-hmm. and you're like, I cannot afford like two thousand dollars for this. Yeah. Like I literally can't afford the con- the money for the consistent treatment that I need to actually or, have. Or I need to keep touring and recording because I need to keep making money. I can't take a break to do this. And this it, is how, yeah, people's brains get destroyed. And yeah. again, I feel like of the the people to 
be sympathetic of labor to it's it's maybe hardest to center pop stars but in they the end we have to that makes people everyone happy. Happy. Yeah. Feel yeah but in the end good. we have to be like labor is valued and no matter whose labor it is or on what scale or what like you know surface level rewards they are getting you know fame fortune private jets or whatever they They're still workers they are still workers and need security and uh if anything uh perhaps as we go on the stated goal of of this show will be to uh value musicians as the laborers that they are solidarity solidarity <laughs> uh Woo, that was good that was yeah. good guys yeah how do you guys feel that was heavy heavy yeah but i think really interesting and i think the stuff from the 50s and 60s hopefully we'll get back into it more in the future um i i was recently reading about the history of disc jockeys in general and i think i kind of want to do an episode on just like DJs, DJs of the 30s, 40s, 50s, because oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. David, have you ever read Perfecting Sound Forever? No. It's really good. Uh, another book that I would recommend if you're interested in this, and I hope that we'll do cover somehow on the show yeah. today. It's, it's a history of the story of recorded music. It's a history of recording technology oh, over the past that. like 150 or so, so years since it's existed. Um, and it gets into a lot of these issues about how as the technology changes, the industries change, the way that we think about and consume music and musicians are uh, uh, induced to create and perform it changes. Very good. Perfecting sound forever. Uh, hopefully someday we'll get Greg Milner on the show. Greg, if you're listening, get in touch. Please, Greg. Greg. I want to talk to you about music. <laughs> um, but then let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Uh, David, would you like to plug anything? Um, yes, I'd like to plug my newsletter. My newsletter is called Penny Fractions. If you just do a quick Google search, it, you can find it. I mostly every week write about music streaming. And I recently, last week's was actually about the SAG, the SAG-AFTRA contract mm -hmm. and about a recent story about a SoundCloud contract that was aggressively shitty. And <laughs> essentially they got publicized that it was shitty and then had to retract a bunch of the shitty parts about it, which is journalism yeah. working yes. when... There are no unions or labor right. yeah. organized to actually make it work. Yeah. So you have to rely on other things. And so that is my newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast, I will say my newsletter will probably be veering even more down the like, well, this is just kind of bad because yeah. <laughs> I I write it from a, a very like biz kind of perspective. And at a certain point, I'm sort of like, OK, I'm just going to have to call a little bit more bullshit on a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Just got to do it. So, yeah, you can find find my newsletter. Otherwise, um. You can find my writing occasionally on the internet. Are you uh, on Twitter? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter at underscore David Turner underscore. I don't tweet often, and my last few tweets have been very sad. So um, <laughs> I would say if you follow me, go for it. And, like, <laughs> if you ever have a question, shoot a DM. I, my DMs are open. I do love talking <laughs> about all of this shit. And if you like this show and you wanted to talk more about labor and in the context of music please do or if you just want to talk about labor there's so much fun stuff happening in labor right <laughs> yes. now actually so like please talk sweet amazing molly i i do have something to plug yes. i have a rare plug i have a um it's a a, a video column on uh alt citizen the the music site alt citizen um called spectator where i've been going to shows and filming them and the wild shit that happens at them so um check that out altcitizen.com uh and i'll we want to throw it in the in the link description too? yeah i'll throw it in the link those, system and you can those, get sweet, it updated on instagram at the molly zone yeah yeah and you follow me on instagram at the molly zone follow me on twitter at miss molly mary where i remain 
underrated. Let's give Molly to a thousand followers. Thousand by followers by the end of the year. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at <laughs> say what again. Uh, I am extremely rated on Twitter, <laughs> uh, but you can follow us on Twitter at and intro pod or send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud is as always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. You know it. Rate, review, subscribe, positive vibes only, but more importantly, Tell a friend that you just listened to a fascinating discussion about the history of labor in the music industry and how every time you stream Lil Pump, you are uh, complicit in a vast scheme to exploit uh, the our brave, noble soundtrack cloud music rappers who are <laughs> braver than the troops. Braver than the troops. Braver than the troops. <laughs> uh, and with that, I think we'll let you go today. Uh, I will... I've got nothing to plug specifically, Um, but we'll see you again in another two weeks here on and introducing.